You're listening to author Sue Brain, and I'm delighted to welcome you back to this third series of Embracing Your Mortality. Yet again, I've got a great lineup of guests, all of whom put living consciously for a better world at the heart of what they do. The aim of this third series is to gather together leading thinkers, scientists and sages to explore why engaging with our mortality matters. We can be very self-centered, but if you're going to die, well then these things don't matter so much. They include death doulas. You are there to be a steady presence for them so they can bash and crash against you or sometimes bask in the sunshine of their stories. The CEO of the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation. Today is all that matters. Today I'm going to smile, reach out and show my love to the world and to people and try to do something and make the world a better place. And what it means to provide alternative support around death and dying. I know that patients could thrive if they had that bit more support in the other dimensions. And my final guest, truly an early Christmas special, is a world-leading expert in near-death experiences, end-of-life experiences and consciousness. And if you haven't already, don't forget to listen to the first two series of Embracing Your Mortality. Links to my guests in both series can be found on my website, suebrain.co.uk Even though we're going through increasingly challenging times, I hope all these conversations from all three series inspire you to embrace your mortality so you too can live more consciously for a better world. Michelle Smith started her career in palliative care and oncology nursing over 20 years ago. Before becoming the director of clinical services in a hospice and leading the teams through the first waves of the pandemic. Michelle is now offering her much needed services to businesses and organisations in how to manage emotionally supportive conversations in the workplace. I started my nurse training when I was 21 and actually my plans after I'd done some voluntary work in a village care home much earlier on were that I thought I would go into elderly care and during the second year of my nurse training I was on a surgical ward and actually I was looking after a a mixed bay four people in it and a, a gentleman in his 50s was admitted and he had abdominal pain sudden onset um, he'd been at work had no previous symptoms and and actually they just thought he had something like appendicitis diverticulitis quite a routine illness the afternoon came he deteriorated and they took him down for a scan without any warning an hour after that a surgeon just arrived at the end of his bed didn't give any privacy didn't call any family and just said to this guy, we've done a scan, we found that you've got cancer, it's widespread, you'll have maybe eight, 10 weeks to live, and walked off. That was it. As a second year student, I was left to pick up the pieces of that. I was well supported by the nurse looking after me when when she found out. But I think that was my real 
first taste of understanding that it shouldn't be like that for people. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it can still happen now. Bad news is often broken so badly. Uh, but, you know, in terms of our respect for each other as humans, you know, the, the small things, they, you can't break a sound barrier by pulling curtains around the bed, but you can promote someone's dignity there you can make sure that regardless of what that surgeon's got going on that afternoon, find another doctor who could wait for the man's family to arrive so that he didn't have to absorb that on his own. And for the other three patients in that bay that had to witness that, hear that, we don't know what any of the three of those had going on in their lives. So I couldn't fix it for that guy, of course, but I definitely knew that that's where my energy was was heading. I just wanted to be able to walk alongside those people, support them and make it the best experience it can be in the most awful circumstance. I had experience of those kind of stories at the Middlesex Hospital back in the yeah. 70s, obviously. Just think, blimey, let's hope it is improving. Do you think it is? I honestly think it's still a really mixed bag. I think there is more training invested now. You know, we make sure that uh, on the educational programs for nurses, doctors, that actually they have got that that program of education. But whether or not they attend, more often than not, a doctor is, is called. And if that training is only happening once every three months and they happen to be called to a cardiac arrest or a clinic appointment, then, of course, they have to go there. So it's improving but there are that we've still a long way to go for sure the whole podcast is about embracing your mortality and I'm very conscious about the way that we're taught that we're going to we are dying it's part of whether we are able to embrace our mortality or we can't and if we're in massive shock or denial or numbed out then we can't really address it and I just wondered what you feel about all of that I completely agree I think you know of course, I've started with a really sad story and something that's quite tragic. But then, you know, I think of other examples where I remember where I was on the millennium um, and I certainly wasn't on London Bridge watching the fireworks. I was doing a night shift on a respiratory ward. And actually, just before midnight, I went into uh, a side room with two two beds in it. There were two men um, and they were watching the fireworks over the town where where I worked. Both of them coincidentally had mesothelioma and both of them were entering the last weeks of life. Mesothelioma is the asbestos related lung cancer that was working in Swindon Hospital where there's a, a large history of the, the railway workers getting, um, getting mesothelioma. But actually they've been so well supported by their Macmillan nurse uh, along the way. They were kept well informed. Their families were with them when the diagnosis was given. They had great legal support who'd been, you know, they'd been introduced early on. Their journey was so very different. Now, I sat with with them. I sat in the middle. I remember having an arm around each of them because they were sat there in silence, but with tears streaming down their faces. But actually what they were doing is it wasn't sadness about their end of life. It was appreciation for the beauty of what they were watching in that moment. They were at peace. They, they were fine with the fact that they were facing their own death. They felt that they said all that they'd had to say to those that mattered to them. They felt that their affairs were in order. It was just such a different experience. So I think, you know, if we get that communication right, the difference it makes to that person's journey and their acceptance is a world apart from, from getting it wrong. Yeah, it's a real, it, it is a, a, the difference between 
dying really um, full of anxiety or dying actually having made peace with your, yourself and your life. For sure. And we won't all make peace, no matter how good that communication is as well. I remember another patient I looked after in, in a hospice I worked at. And I really connected with, with this lady because we both had babies who were four months old at the time of me meeting her. She came back and forth to the hospice for a good few months. And, and actually, although she was well informed, although she had a great support network in terms of friends, family, she could not ever accept the fact that she wouldn't see her daughter grow up. Her one aim was to get to her daughter's first birthday. She actually died the day before, but she died standing up because she could not, she just couldn't let herself relax. She just was driven by that love. And it doesn't mean she had a bad death because she died fighting to try and get to that milestone to show her daughter what she meant to her. She was at peace with everything else. And she'd done the, the memory boxes. She'd written letters. But actually, you know, that was done really well. So a lot of people will write letters for when your child gets married, when your child goes to university. But that puts such a pressure on, oh, I better go to university so I can get that letter. I better get married so I can get that letter. Now, her husband knew of the letters, but he was really clear and supportive is as she wrote them he made sure that he knew she would only get these letters on these certain occasions but actually she'd also written one for every birthday up until uh, the daughter was 30 so regardless of what you do or don't achieve or set out to do in life the letter was coming you will always have a birthday oh my good that's really really moving it's it's amazing isn't it and uh, I think, again, you know, like I say, not everybody will be able to just relax and um, be symptom free. But actually, it's about knowing that you've done the best that you can do. You can still accept where you are in your in your end of life journey. So much depends on, on excellent communication around that, though. That for me is probably where I first learned the difference between empathy and sympathy. And that is so important. You don't have to be a nurse to understand that. If we put ourselves in a position of sympathy, we come more from a place of pity. So, uh, for example, if if you were to say to me, um, my dog died yesterday, I could say, I feel really very sorry for you. That's putting me in a position of, of authority, if you like, because I'm giving you pity. If I was to say to you, I adore my dog and I can't imagine how you feel right now, I'm actually showing that I'm trying to come alongside you and understand what your experience Mm. is at that moment. And that's the difference. Empathy is very much about walking alongside that person, not trying to fix it, not trying to make it better in any way. You're just allowing someone the space to explore how they're feeling if they want to. And actually, it's equally okay if someone just says, thanks, I appreciate that, but they close the conversation down. When I was writing the D word, I interviewed a lot of people and I came to an understanding that it's not that we don't want to talk about death and dying, it's we don't know how to. What is the best response in difficult situations? I think the most important thing to remember first off is each conversation will be unique. And I've been having these conversations for 20 years now, and each one has to be treated as if it is the first conversation you're having because it's a unique experience to that individual. 
regardless of whether you've had a very similar experience, another key fact is about making sure that you keep it about that person. Never talk about, oh, I know what it's like when my mum died, blah, 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 blah. It's not about that. And potentially they might have approached you because they know your mum died, but very importantly, bring it back to making sure that it's about how that person's feeling. If it's in a work setting, which very often it will be, these conversations just happen from from nowhere. Or if it's a social setting, it doesn't matter. Make sure that you've blocked time before and after you know that there's the potential of that conversation happening. Very often we won't fix to a time frame and you might digress in, you know, 101 different directions. But actually let the person do that. It has to be guided by them. And another key thing when you're having these difficult conversations is to understand the importance of silence. It's incredibly difficult. It really is. And and I find that hard now. I think another thing is we're not good at listening because we haven't been taught how to listen. And most people think communication is is a barrage of words without breath. Um, And I'm sure we've all had that experience being talked at. Yeah. Often if we are in those kind of emotional support conversations, we will automatically not necessarily be hearing what the person, we might be nodding in the right place. We might be leaning forward and doing all of the things that the training course taught us to do, but we won't be listening and hearing properly because we'll be thinking, okay, when can I interject? I just want to go back to you now. You trained in in a hospital. So Manchester, I came from London um, and then moved back after I trained in Manchester. So what happened to you after that? I worked my way up towards sister in respiratory medicine. Even though I knew I wanted to do palliative care, I definitely needed an understanding of how a body works and can be broken and fixed and put back together again. I think that's really essential for, for any nursing role. I managed to get a job in the local hospice when I'd done a, you know, felt, felt that I had that grounding and worked my way up over the years from uh, a nurse on the inpatient unit um, and across different hospices and with third sector organisations. Um, I've held more senior director level roles more recently. All of that time, I've constantly heard from families and actually patients who are in the earlier stages trying to work and, and balance their illness that they're very often not supported in the workplace. Again, not because people don't want to help, but actually they just felt that their employers don't understand or it's so policy driven that you might have your two weeks leave and then before you know it, occupational health are drafted in. Well, actually, again, unless you've got that strong communication, that person will feel unsupported. If it's a process and it's something that has to be done nine times out of 10, of course it does. But actually, again, it's the importance of the communication around, Okay, to support you well, these are the things we need to do. When you feel supported, it actually lessens the anger. Exactly. And and that's when people take long term sick leave or or worse, they'll lose, they'll, they'll leave their employment altogether. And then you're faced with a. A position of you know your confidence might have been affected because you you feel you might have had to leave the job that you previously really loved and gave your all for the organization you've got the flip side of they've invested in this person and because they haven't supported them properly when they needed it they now have to go through recruitment training up someone else so for both parties it's so important to get it right What was it like for you to go from hands-on nursing and obviously your love of it, that's what I I feel from you, to then going into management? 
in all honesty, I didn't actually stop dealing with the patients. Um, and I think we have an opportunity in any director level in nursing, you do have the choice to go down to the, you know, the, the patient-based floor. You can work alongside your nurses. You can go and I, I used to walk around the unit, you know, three or four times a, a week, just say, how's it going? Is there anything that we can do differently? At the same time, you're visible to your nursing team. So I think that just helps communication you can understand their their struggles. You know, I, I've I've led a team through through the pandemic, and you know, of course, in a hospice, we we see death and dying all of the time, but not at the level that even our hospice nurses were experiencing over these last eighteen months. If you are a, a working at a director level in nursing, unless you work alongside your team, you're an ineffective leader because you can't possibly understand the experience they're having. I miss full-time hands-on care. I do. But actually, you have to spin it around to a place where if you're lucky enough to hold one of these positions, you have the ability to influence and impact care that you wouldn't necessarily otherwise have. So, so that's the way I've, I've managed those more senior roles. Well, what was it like for you then to witness, or all of you actually, to witness the deaths that you're talking about during the pandemic really very hard um i, I think um certainly symptom control was more difficult during the pandemic um because obviously people were more breathless than normal we, we saw even in a hospice a lot of people dying of covid but actually the thing that impacted both myself and and certainly the nursing team more was we had to stop visiting the same as any other healthcare organization one of the most important things in, in hospice care ethos is getting that final goodbye right. Um, and you want to do the right thing uh, for the patient and for the families. But very often, by the time someone dies in a hospice, we will have had really clear conversations around the kind of death they want. Do they want their family there? Do they want an important piece of music playing? Do you want your horse there? You know, we, we've done all of that in, in a hospice setting. So to be in a position where you can only have one person in for the main of the time and then two two or three people in at the very end of life facilitating video calls and bringing um, families around to the to the window to have to say goodbye that way I can't imagine what that must must feel like and it had a definite impact I think you know one, one of the the pieces that the hospice were really focusing on as I was leaving was how we manage that care moving on for, for our nurses. And that will be across the healthcare sector. And I would hope they're giving it equal attention, regardless of the setting. These deaths during the, the lockdown, did it change your relationship with death? Maybe more my relationship with life, actually. I'm really very comfortable with, with my own death. Um, it, it doesn't scare me. It doesn't frighten me. But I think what it did do is make me realise that I might not be making enough of each day. What it has done for me is definitely spurred me on to to do different things. I'm looking at my own sort of personal development. I've started looking more at being grateful for things that are around me. I think it's just potentially taken me down a different life path, but one that makes me see how much I have to be grateful and, and appreciate. The UK's got its issues and problems. We all know that. The vast majority of us in this country live very, very comfortable lives. And it's so easy to take it for granted. And every time I turn on the water, I'm grateful. A lot of the 
the things I've been reading have been exactly around that. You know, the, the more grateful you are in your life for what you have, the more peaceful a life that, that you'll lead. And I can see that the difference in terms of how much calmer I am for understanding that you know, just don't take everything for granted. Just really appreciate what you've got, who you've got. Like you say, everything, running water, electricity. We couldn't have this conversation this morning if we didn't have electricity, Wi-Fi, technology. It's everything, you know, I, I think it, it's made a massive difference to me. I'm also noticing as I'm getting older that I'm beginning to um, really look at my death. Then. I mean, that's my job, you know, whether it's going to be next year, 10 years time, who knows? Mm. But I think it is about that. And just, and, you know, and, and it's giving me the wow factor much more. Like I, I was watching um, three butterflies dance together thinking oh my god that's so amazing and it's not that I haven't noticed it before but I think because I'm so aware of my own mortality now it's much more vivid thinking about the numerous conversations I will have had at you know sitting next to someone's bedside as they're in those final days hours of life and actually the number of people that would have remembered the small things like the three butterflies dancing and the beauty and the, the feeling of happiness that gave them that counts for so much more than the fact that they were a director earning £200,000 a year. None of that matters, actually, you'll find at the end. People will appreciate the three butterflies dancing so much more. And that's where the beauty of, of great end-of-life care comes in. You've moved your attention to working with people in business. How are you crossing over to that? So the, the decision came from, uh, you know, as we mentioned a moment ago, just listening to families and the patients feeling that the workplace didn't really quite get how to respond to them when they told them that, you know, th these emotional things were happening to them. I think there is great support in the healthcare structure, in the hospice sector, but in the workplace that isn't translated over. Um, and actually, I think it was Mind that did a study not, not so long ago, um, and only 41% of managers in the UK felt that they were supported to deliver that kind of emotional support. That leaves a lot of managers who are feeling that they don't know how to, to deal with that. Yeah. And it's across sectors. So I think, you know, I wanted to be in a position where I can use that skill set and use my experience of having those conversations every day for, for the last 20 years and share my knowledge. I'm not a counsellor, I have no intention of becoming a counsellor because also one of the key points in the training I want to deliver is, is around the fact that as a manager, you will take that conversation so far, but you are not a fixer um, and you are not the counsellor. You are the person who will sit there and listen to the initial story and actually, your job then is just to support. You don't cross that boundary. So I think by not becoming a counsellor myself or going after that qualification, I'm able to, to, you know, to role model how you have that conversation without needing to deliver an hour's counselling every week, because that's not what it's about. But those conversations are happening in, in all sorts of workplaces. You know, you think about there are 112 children that lose a parent every day in the UK. That's that's wow. a phenomenal statistic. Phenomenal. But actually, how many teachers in a playground when they're approached by, you know, the grandparent who's brought the, uh, the child into school that morning, how many teachers are prepared to, to receive that, that news that mum or dad died in a road traffic accident yesterday, but they felt that actually the best thing for the child was to keep their routine while the family sort, sort things out. Teachers don't have the training to, to respond to that. How many managers are sat there running late for a meeting? There's a knock at the door. 
have you got five minutes? Yeah, of course, but they carry on sort of messing around with, with their paperwork or their emails. And actually their staff member turns around and says, you know, I'm really sorry, but on Friday last week, I was diagnosed with motor neurone disease or, you know, my, my wife had a stillbirth at the weekend. There are so many different circumstances where people are experiencing loss every day and, and things that, you know, do make you question your mortality much earlier than you perhaps might have. I think, you know, I think my passion for wanting to continue to help people is still very evident in the business model. Um, it's just not delivering hands-on nursing care, um, which I will miss terribly. Like a, a definite calling, if you like. I, I think the pandemic again has, and the conversation I had with you a moment ago about embracing my life, it's like, okay, you've had this little idea for a couple of years, just go for it. Yeah, um, just do it. It seems to me that um, businesses are now obliged to incorporate well-being into how they care for their staff. But what does well-being mean in that context? And it certainly doesn't seem to me that well-being is about what you're doing. What you are doing is definitely well-being. Um, so, so it definitely has been a struggle to kind of define what I do um, in a way that aligns to well-being. Many companies will actually uh, will actually opt for the kind of the employee assistance program, where you've got the the phone call system, um, and yes, it's anonymous, but actually, not many people choose to use those services at, at the point. Um, much earlier on than crisis they sort of feel that they've exhausted every other option and and then they might pick up the phone of course keep them as a model they're valued they're well used they they definitely have their place I don't dispute that for a moment but that does not account or equal to that face-to-face support from the familiar face of your manager you really need to understand and feel that your workplace have got your back in my opinion that only comes from having that in-house conversation as well all you need is for someone just to hear that it's a tough time. That's all that that, yeah. com- that first conversation needs to be no more than that. There is such a place for it at the moment. With the pandemic, I've been very, very conscious that death has been very present in the media. I just wonder, do you feel like that the pandemic has enabled us to open up these conversations much more honestly and openly about end of life and death and dying? I think it definitely has. I I think, you know, obviously it's always been part of my everyday speak um, because lots of my friends also work in palliative care. So even in my social life, death death is there all the time. But actually when I come out to my wider circle um, and and start having conversations and conversations with people I've not previously met as well, there's definitely a shift and there's definitely more openness. And I think people have been more or less, well, they have been sort of smacked in the face, haven't they? Because address how how they sort of tackle each day differently Uh, but definitely there are more conversations around uh, people's approach to death their openness to exploring it and and just people sort of thinking about what it what it means to them and what do they want I, I think you know some a couple of my close friends who actually aren't um aren't in the same field as me at all during the pandemic, they've now got their will sorted out. They've now started having conversations around, you know, what, what do I want my funeral to look like? And when you dig a little bit deeper, it's because they don't know that this time next week, they're not going to be needing to, to you know, have that put in place for them. So it's 
definitely and and they're not scared by that but it's just the practicalities that actually the pandemic has allowed us to sort of think okay do you know what life really can change in the blink of an eye and it's always been that way we just haven't recognized it Michelle Smith. You'll find more information about Michelle and the work she does with businesses and organisations through her LinkedIn page. Now, my next guest is Michael, an earth medicine man who for the past 20 years has been leading sacred pipe and prayer ceremonies with plant teachers in a sacred Mexican tradition. Certainly in my first ceremony, it was like, why are they saying thank you again? You know, you know, so how many times do you need to say thank you? But the more we do that, the more we realise just how blessed we are. You've been listening to Embracing Your Mortality, and I look forward to you joining me again next time. In the meantime, here's to us all living more consciously for a better world. <laughs>